Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Let me read these verses to you in Acts chapter 2. We're focusing on the work of the Spirit of God uh, because next week, next Sunday, uh, or I should say Shabbat, Sunday, Saturday evening, Sunday, begins Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the fourth of the ma- seven major festivals that the Jewish people observe and that was commanded in the law. And one of the things that one focuses attention upon with respect to the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, also in the Greek called Pentecost, 50-day feast, is the work of the Holy Spirit, the granting of the Spirit of God on this particular day, the granting of the law on Mount Sinai. These connections are made. We'll make some of them this morning. But in Acts chapter 2, we read, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing and a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with this Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit of God enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Interesting passage, is it not? And it's a passage that focuses on the descent, can we call it that, the coming the filling, the immersing work of the Spirit of God, as Yeshua said, would occur. In fact, if we look at Acts chapter 2 in its broader context, we know that in Acts chapter 1, Yeshua spent an additional 40 days after his resurrection with his 12 disciples, or I should say his 11 disciples. He taught them more and more, and at the end of that time of discipleship, they asked him the question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Yeshua does not tell them that your idea of a kingdom that needs to be restored is mistaken. He tells them that you are right about the expectation of a kingdom to come on the earth that Messiah will reign over, but you are wrong with respect to the times and seasons and when that kingdom will appear. So he tells them that the times when that is to take place is in the Father's hands. And then he gives them a commission. We have various commissions that Messiah gives to his disciples in Matthew 28, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Here he tells them in verse 7 that it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the kingdom will be established. But until that time, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Spirit of God comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now we know that the Spirit of God's coming is intended to empower them to bear testimony to who Messiah is. This word testimony is the Greek word martyreo, from which we get the word to be a martyr. We use that word to die, to suffer for a cause or a purpose. And indeed, it can mean that. But in the Greek, it means to stand up and to be counted for something that you cherish and believe in, whether it costs you your life or not. And so over and over again, John, the immerser, the Baptist, the one who had immersed Messiah, and many others who had identified with his message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and therefore repent, is over and over again described as one who martyred, one who had testified and stood up for the Messiah, and it would cost him his life. But they are told they are going to bear testimony. And there are different ways of bearing testimony. One is by what you say. The other is how you live. One is by the things you propose and do. The other is about the character that you exhibit and the kind of person we become. In chapter 1, there is the anticipation of the Messiah's coming, and cha- uh, of the Spirit's coming. And in chapter 2, the record of his descent. In chapter 1 is the promise, wait in Jerusalem until the promise I spoke to you about from my Father descends and comes to you, and thus they obey him. They remain in Jerusalem, and we're told that during that time that they're in Jerusalem, they gather with other believers. We're told there's 120 that gather at one point in an upper room where they are praying. While they were there, Peter says, you know, we're missing one disciple. Judas had betrayed our master, and therefore it is necessary, it's incumbent upon us to find a replacement, and thus they do. Once that replacement is found, we then find ourselves in chapter 2. It's the day of Shavuot. It's Pentecost. How much time has elapsed? The text does not describe. But some time must have elapsed. Because the scene seems to have changed. It must have changed because in chapter 2 now, when the Spirit of God descends and the disciples are empowered by the Spirit to testify of Messiah, they are speaking out to all of these that have gathered in the temple to celebrate Shavuot. And we're told of some 15 or so different languages that were being spoken in the presenting of who Messiah is to the Jewish people who were gathered on Shavuot. Now, there were a lot of people gathered because Shavuot is one of the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. 
all Jewish people, according to Deuteronomy 16 and also Exodus 34. So all Jewish people from the, from the uh, extended empire are to come to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. So Jerusalem has swelled in number. There's hundreds of thousands of people. In my estimation, in chapter 2, the disciples are no longer in the upper room when this event occurs. They are now, in my opinion, in the temple because it's here that they're going to speak and there's no, no transition from an upper room to the temple. They're just there speaking to the crowd that is in Jerusalem. Must have been the temple because in Shavuot, that's where they're going to be. The sacrifices had to be offered, the grain offerings, two of them, held by the high priest and waved before the Lord. Different ways that the high priest offered sacrifices. Sometimes they were heave offerings where they lifted things up to God. Sometimes they were wave offerings where they spread their arms before the Lord. Something like an all-encompassing granting of this offering on behalf of the people. It's interesting that there are two loaves, according to Leviticus 23, that were to be offered, perhaps representing Jews and non-Jews. Perhaps representing the Jewish people gathered here and the proselytes, non-Jews that have acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's interesting that when the Spirit descends, it brings together this body of believers made up of Jews and non-Jews, what we would call the congregation of believers, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, if I could use that term. I don't use it too often here, but on occasion. I, don't, I do think they were in the temple because notice this. It says in verse 5 and 6, Now they were gathering in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation when they heard this sound. They're not in the upper room. You can't have all these people gathered and squeezed into this upper room. But yet they heard the sound. What sound? Well, if we look at verse 1 or 2, there was the sound like the blowing of a violent wind that came from heaven. And then it says, filled the whole house. Well, the house may refer to the upper room, but I don't think it does. I think the house here refers to the temple and the temple precincts. By the way, in Acts chapter 7, I think it's verse 47, the word house is used with respect to the temple that Solomon used. So I think what has happened here is the believers gathered in the upper room. But the focus is not on the 120. The focus is on the disciples. And they choose another to complete the band of 12. And now the disciples in chapter 2 are gathered on the day of Pentecost. They may have been with many other believers, but the focus is on the disciples who are gathered. The focus is on the descent of the Spirit of God on the disciples Now, the reason I say disciples, because it's interesting that when they hear, when the people hear the testimony in their own language, they say, are not these men Galileans? Now, if you look at chapter 1, notice that the angel that comes before the disciples when Yeshua is lifted up into heaven, he refers to them of men of Galilee. Well, who are the ones that saw Yeshua ascend into heaven? The 11 disciples. Who are the men of Galilee in chapter 2? It's now the 12 disciples. It was on the 12 disciples that the Spirit of God particularly took up residence and manifested itself like tongues of fire. Now, when he says tongues of fire, I don't, mean, I don't think he means little flames like we talk about tongues of flames in a fireplace. I think he means tongues of fire, as odd as that may appear. 
He's not talking about how small the fire is, but at the purpose for the fire's coming. And if you read it carefully, there's the sound of this violent rushing wind, and then it says a fire descended that separated. There was something of one fiery presence that manifested itself. This is none other than the Shekinah glory, right? The cloud by day, the fire by night. The manifestation of the Spirit of God in connection with the Shekinah glory. And as this huge or larger manifestation of fire appears, it then breaks off into 12 tongues of fire that hover over, I believe, the 12 disciples. Now, I also believe this because if you look at verse 13... And they say, some, however, made fun of them, speaking in these other languages with Galilean accents. You know, when people hear me say Hebrew in a Jersey accent, they're like, what's, what's he saying? You know, I think it sounds perfectly right. Perfectly right. But they are saying, they have too much wine. Now, look what Peter says. He says in verse 14, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. I love that. That's very Jersey. Let me explain this to you, right? Listen up. You know, this is exactly, you know he's from that area. So he says, these men are not drunk. So were the women drunk, but the men weren't? Think about that. He says, these men, he uses the word for males. He doesn't use anthropos. He uses aner, the word for males. These males are not drunk. Now, if it was the whole 120 with the women, and if they all were like this, were they concerned that the women, they may be drunk, but I mean, the women were drunk, Peter is saying, but the men weren't? No, he's talking about the men who were speaking in these languages. So women weren't. So even if you take the upper room, women weren't doing it, because that's what Peter says. But I don't think that's the point. The point is the 12 were being separated from the crowd And as such, we're being recognized for their distinctive calling as the apostles who are going to bring the message that Yeshua told them to bring to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's sort of this background thing, right? Now, having understood, in my opinion, that this is about the disciples, this is Shavuot. And you know, in Jewish tradition... The rabbis tell us that when Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, because that's what the Jewish people celebrate on Shavuot, among other things, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Why? Because Shavuot occurs 50 days after the Sabbath, after Passover begins. Now, if that sounds complicated, just try to follow the Jewish calendar. You know, it is complicated. But Shavuot occurs seven weeks, 49 days, depending how you count it, 50 days, but 49 days after the Sabbath of Passover. So Shavuot does not have a date unto itself. It's connected to Passover. So when Passover occurs, after the Sabbath of Passover, some 49 days, that's when we celebrate Shavuot. So the rabbis say Shavuot is the conclusion of Passover. And what concluded Passover? The giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So the law is celebrated as being given. And what occurred when the law was given? You know, I was rereading this, and in Exodus chapter 19, you can turn there if you like, but in Exodus chapter 19, it's very fascinating to read what Moses encountered. 
It says that on the morning, verse 16, on the morning of the third day. Now, that's another thing we could stop and pause for a moment. How often the third day is made reference to in Scripture. But we don't have time to do that this morning. But nevertheless, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Now, the trumpet blast is probably how they heard the voice of God. It's interesting because when John, the book of Revelation, is brought up into the presence of God, he hears the voice of God like a trumpet. And when the translation of the body of believers in Thessalonians, Paul tells us there will be the trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel. It's interesting these things are always sort of paired together. Here he hears a trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God And they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. This is scary stuff, right? And in Deuteronomy, Moses tells us how frightened he was when God said, Okay, now you're coming up here. And in the book of Hebrews... Chapter 12, the writer tells us how Moses trembled when he went up the mountain. And it says that the mountain trembled violently. And notice the sound of the trumpet, perhaps the voice of God, grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The rabbis tell us that when God spoke, it wasn't only Israel that heard the words of the law. But that the whole world, as as is their thought, the whole world, all the nations had heard. It's interesting, the rabbis attach this international sense of this festival, even as the book of Acts does as well. Because it's not just Jews that are gathered in Jerusalem, but proselytes who are Gentiles who have acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have this connection. We'll talk more about that next week. But we have this connection between what the rabbis understood, what's going on in Acts chapter 2. And oftentimes we focus on the tongues of fire. It's very clear that the tongues, languages that were spoken, were languages that were known on the earth. With all due respect to my Pentecostal friends, these are not heavenly languages. Because it says we've all heard the languages of ourselves, whether they're Medes or Mesopotamians or Arabs or whatever it is. So they're speaking earthly languages, and what oftentimes happens is we focus on that. But the passage doesn't focus on that. The focus is on two other things that I want to just take a moment to share with you. The focus is the wind and the fire. And they are symbolic of the powerful presence of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is a person. Remember we said that last week. He's not an abstraction. He's not a force like electricity that just charges us, although we think about that sometimes. He's not like gravity, which moves us from place to place. He's a person who leads us and guides us and empowers us and infuses us with his own energy, although I don't like the word energy. But he infuses us with his own life. Let's call it that, his life. And I am amazed by the imagery here of wind. Because wind is a very fascinating thing to reflect upon in Scripture. You know, the words for spirit, 
means wind or breath. And in Hebrew and in Greek, you need to have some wind and breath to say it. It's like what you say is sort of reflected in how you say it. You know, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. (laughs) I exaggerated, but, you know, pneuma. You know, it's like pn, pneuma. We get the word like pneumonia from that. But you got to have a breath to say pneumonia, you know. And in the Hebrew word is ruach. You have to have breath to say it. It's really kind of fascinating, right? That the very word and what it means requires the senses to say it. And it's almost like the moment you say it, you sort of get a sense of the experience of it. Breath, wind. We think spirit, Holy Spirit, human spirit, but it's that wind breath thing. Now, this is what I learned in thinking about this. When the Spirit of God is first introduced to us, Genesis chapter 1, The Lord says, let there be light, and there is light, and there is water. And then it says, the Spirit of God, I used to say, and it was corrected to me when I was a very young person, uh, knowing the Lord, not that young, I was 17 when I came to faith, but I was still very ignorant. And so when I read the passage, I said, and the Spirit of God hoovered over the waters. They said, no, that's a vacuum, you know, (laughs) so... Sorry, man, yeah, got that wrong. It's hovered, hovered, oh, okay. You can see the things get riveted in one's mind, you know. But it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The word there, by the way, is the same word that speaks of a dove flying. So it's interesting that when Yeshua is immersed, it says that John saw the Spirit of God like a dove. The Spirit of God often hovers. But the meaning in Genesis doesn't mean he was like a bird that was just sort of floating along on the thermals. What it means is the breath of God, the Spirit of God, the breath of God gave life to what God had initially brought into being in creation. He's got water and air. There's no life in it. But once the Spirit of God breathes, all of a sudden God can then bring all kinds of stuff out of it. He can say, let there be teeming things come out of the water or out in the sky. All of a sudden, there's lifeness in the creation once the Spirit of God gets a hold of it. It's not unlike in the very next chapter, right, when man is created. I mean, this stuff like really does it for me. When man is created out of the dirt of the ground. And the Hebrew words are so cool. It says that God fashioned it and formed it and shaped it. It's like you're watching a sculptor, like a, cl- a person working with clay, putting together a jar and just forming it. And he's got all these artistic sort of images. And he makes mankind. And he sort of observe it, observes it. But not until the Spirit of God breathes his life-giving presence into the dirt, that it becomes a living being, a nefesh chaya, a being full of life. There are many other passages like this. In Ezekiel 37, you know the passage of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel is shown the valley and he sees all these dry bones. And the Lord says to him, now son of man, can these bones live? And it reminded me like when I was a student and the teacher would ask me a question. I'd say, uh, Mr. So-and-so, you know the answer to that. <laughs> you know. And so Ezekiel very smartly says, uh, you know, Lord. And the Lord says that when the Spirit of God then moves, yes, the bones can 
can grow. And then they start to move. And there's sinews and there's uh, skin and there's muscle and there's tissue. It comes together. But it's not until the Spirit of God breathes on the nation of Israel, which is what those bones symbolize, is the whole house of Israel, Ezekiel says. It's not until the Spirit of God breathes on them that they become a living nation. You know, this is what it says about the Word of God, right? The Word of God is theopneutas. It is God-breathed. The words of Scripture are just words. But when they are activated, enlivened by the Spirit of God's breath... They are living, and they are active, and they are able to divide soul from spirit and body, and they begin to give life. They're not just words on a page. They are life-giving truths of God himself, because the Spirit of God is a wind that breathes the life of God on whatever he decides to breathe upon. And so when Yeshua is asked by Nicodemus, how can one be born again? He says the Spirit must breathe life into we who are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now I know we've heard John 3.16 and we've heard about being born again. You know the Greek word to be born again can mean three different things. The word can mean to be born again, born anew. It can mean to be born from above. And it can also mean, though this isn't oftentimes associated, but it can also mean to be born from the beginning. And as I thought about this, I think what Yeshua might have been saying is, In order to have spiritual life, one must be born again anew like from the beginning. Meaning to say, in the same way that human beings became a living being, we too need to become living beings by the breath of God that would breathe upon us and to make us alive unto Him, for we are dead. Just like at the beginning... We came into reality and into existence by the breath of God. And even now, because of the effects of sin in our life, we need the breath of God to make us alive unto him. The power of God is exhibited and demonstrated by making us alive to the things of God. That's the power of the Spirit of God. It isn't just the things we do with respect to raising the dead or healing the sick. It's about being empowered to be a living person that exerts and exhibits and exudes the life of God in everything he touches. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's about the promise of Messiah that my very life will live in you in a way you have no idea and wait to see how it touches the lives of others to transform and to change and to rearrange everything about them. That's what's going on here. That's why they said, the people said they were so amazed. These people were transformed. 
These people's lives were not like they were. Peter stands up, who oftentimes just said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and he stands up and he gives a message and 3,000 people respond. Why? Because the power of God in the life-giving words of Peter touched the hearts and minds of others, and they came to him. By the way, on Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died. Because when Moses came down the mountain, you remember they were in revelry and worshiping the golden calf, 3,000 died. But here, 3,000 are saved. Why? Because the law will bring death, but the Spirit of God, he will bring life, life everlasting. You know, the phrase, to be filled with the Spirit, and by the way, look at that. In Acts chapter 2, it says, the house was filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God's presence, the temple, it just shook. Everybody heard the sound. They ran over. They saw these guys probably by Solomon's porch where their Messiah oftentimes taught. And they gathered where they saw the effects of fire. We can't talk about that this morning. I wanted to, but we're not going to. But they saw the fire, the tongues, the language, the words that they were saying. They gathered around them in the temple. And the Spirit of God filled the temple. Now, it filled them, but the focus is on the presence of God is permeating the place. This word filled, do you know it only occurs 14 times in the Brit HaDashah in the New Covenant Scriptures? Four of those times occur in the book of Luke, chapter 1 and then in chapter 4. One of those times is in the epistle, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The nine remaining are all in the book of Acts. And every time, without exception, when the Spirit of God fills an individual, they testify with boldness regarding the work of Messiah. If we're filled with the Spirit, we will testify of Him. We will speak words about Him. We will live a life that reflects Him. We will cherish values that are about Him. Our actions and our attitudes will be ones that exhibit Him. We will manifest the love, the joy, the peace, and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit because they are the characteristics of Messiah, which the Spirit of God, by virtue of His filling us, will naturally exhibit because He dwells in our midst. You notice, what did the disciples have to do to experience this? They had to obey. (laughs) They had to be in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Spirit It gets back again to what we said at the very outset. The Spirit of God is not a thing. He is a person, not an it. If you think of him as an it, you will think of ways to get it. And you will think that there are hoops that you need to jump through to get it. You will think that there are buttons to push to get it. You will become prideful and self-focused because you're going to want to get it. And when you get it, you will be thinking others don't have it the way I have it. But if they did what I did, they could have it too. And then we become individuals that think we are greater than others or more enlightened than others or more knowledgeable than others or more spiritual than others. But that is not the way to receive him. The way to receive him is to obey him. It is to do what he tells us to do. What does he tell us to do? You want to be filled with the Spirit? You need to love one another as I have loved you. You want to receive the Spirit of God like the disciples did and be the kind of testimony? You need to forgive one another even as I have forgiven you. 
If you want to walk in the ways of the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit, you need to say the same kind of things Yeshua said, which are things like, not my will be done, but your will be done. In other words, it comes back to something I shared last week, and that is we need to think of others better than ourselves, as Paul says in Philippians. We need to love one another with as we would love ourselves. We need to become as selfless as we can be because that is what characterizes our Messiah and the Spirit of God and the Father. They were utterly, immensely, eternally selfless as the Father gives His Son, as the Son gives His life, and as the Spirit points to our Messiah. The more we are like that, there's no tricks of the trade. There's no seminars you can take. It's all about, do I love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Am I walking with him day by day? Am I seeking him? We will fall along the way, but he will pick us up, and we will keep moving forward as he drives us forward, leads us forward, and enables us to move forward moment by moment and day by day. But we have to have the right goals in mind. We have to have the right expectations in mind. And I come back to this, and here's where I close. I said earlier during the Lord's Supper, Moses went up the mountain and returned. Messiah went up the mountain and gave his life. It is about him that all of these things are concerned. It's about obeying him. It's about his gift to us. It's about focusing on who he is and desiring to be like him. That is our challenge, but that is what happens here when the Spirit of God takes hold of the lives of these individuals who are waiting upon him. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning. We're grateful for the greatness of your character. Awesome are you, O Lord. We are thankful for the hope, for your Spirit has taken up residence within us. If we know Messiah, the Spirit of God is already indwelling within us because, as Paul says, unless we have the Spirit of God in us, we don't know Him. If we know Him, we have the Spirit of God within us. And so, Lord, we pray that your Spirit, by His power, would breathe on us afresh. And in that fresh breath of life, perhaps all of our trials will not be removed. They weren't removed from Moses, and neither were they removed from the disciples, and neither were they removed from Messiah. But it's not about escaping something. It's about an indwelling, permeating presence of yourself. So we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would fill us continually and that we would be yielded, demonstrated by our obedience. And that, Father, through your empowerment, we would testify of you by both life as well as lip, by our beliefs as well as our behavior. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified, and many others like these in Acts chapter 2 will take note and be perplexed and amazed by what you've done in a given life yielded to you. 
And may the results be that in that testimony, many would embrace you as Messiah and Lord. For this we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.